Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Today, Costas Halabrezos interviews author Marilyn Davidson Elliott. The cold, hard facts of the Halifax explosion of 1917 are just that, numbers which can't communicate the physical and mental agonies unleashed on the citizens. But as destructive as it was, it created at least one extraordinary survivor. A little boy named Eric Davidson was two and a half years old that December morning. He stood at the window in his house. Like thousands of others, he was watching the flames and smoke of a ship burning in the harbor. It was the last thing he would ever see. Despite what happened to him, Eric Davidson achieved things which you might find hard to imagine. Marilyn Davidson Elliott is Eric's proud daughter and the author of The Blind Mechanic. Welcome to Book Me. Thank you. It's good to be here. I've read many accounts of the Halifax explosion, but none got to me like yours. Tell us what your father's family was doing that morning. My father and his sister Marjorie and his mother, uh, Georgina, were at home in the kitchen and um, the usual morning routine, breakfast and so on, and his father had left for work and was heading down Duffus Street. Um, They were looking out the window towards the harbor and marveling at this fire in the harbor. And um, he had asked uh, his mother why all the horns were beeping, what the noise was about. And she explained to him that uh, when ships passed each other in the harbor, they tooted their horns to indicate which direction each was going in. And uh, she used two knives uh, and drew them together uh, to show them what she was talking about. Anyway, as they were looking out the window, um, the explosion occurred, and then the house collapsed in around them. Um, But fortunately, they survived. Many did not. And um, it it was a gruesome sight for my grandmother when you know, she came to, she had passed out, and when she came to and retrieved her children, uh, crawling through the rubble to to their cries, um, it was a, a horrible shock for her to see my father, the condition he was in. And tell us about the injuries your your father sustained. Um, he, he was, uh, the glass blew into his face and his upper body, um, so he was not only lacerated, um, you know, in the neck and the face and so on, but his eyes were lacerated and, and embedded with many shards of, of glass. So when they did make it to the hospital, the doctors could not save his eyes. Could you read to us about what your father's family was doing that morning? Uh, certainly. Uh, In the early morning hours of December 6, 1917, Georgina had a dream in which she was told to gather her family and leave Halifax. She felt it was real, and she woke John and told him of the dream. Neither of them could have foreseen the horror that was about to unfold a few hours later. And so it was, on December 6, 1917, that John left for work while little Eric, Marjorie, and their mother stood looking toward the harbor, watching while the Mont Blanc burned, lighting up the winter sky. Eric was running his toy train engine back and forth on the windsill as he watched the fire. 
Marjorie stood nearby. Ship's horns were making a commotion down in the harbour, and Eric asked his mother why the horns were blowing. Georgina placed two knives on the table and slid them along toward each other to demonstrate to the children how ships would pass by each other while travelling in opposite directions in the harbour. At approximately 9.04 a.m., the Mont Blanc blew up, and Georgina's nightmare became reality. In that instant, the house shook violently and collapsed in upon the family. The window that Eric had been looking through exploded inwards, sending shards of shattered glass into his face, viciously penetrating his beautiful blue eyes. In that moment, he was plunged into darkness for the rest of his life. Georgina struggled to make her way to her children through the rubble. She managed to locate Marjorie and Eric and drew them in close to her, trying vainly to console them and to protect them from further injury. When she looked at Eric's face with glass penetrating his eyes, she went weak with despair. He was clawing at his eyes, and Georgina did her best to restrain him. It was all she could do to maintain her own sanity. At the same time, Georgina's mind was racing. What on earth had just happened? Georgina soon realized that her eerie dream from the night before had come to fruition. Now... Tell us about your grandfather, who had left for work that morning as well. What happened to him? He was walking down Duffus Street and uh, noticed that everyone seemed to be glued to the harbour, what was going on there, and he uh, headed further down the street, and in an instant, when the Mont Blanc blew up, he was blown against a tree and uh, lost some of his clothing and his footwear and was knocked unconscious, of course, yeah. Now, when he came to... What did he find when he made his way back to the house? When he came to, uh, he made his way home and found the home collapsed. And his worst nightmares, of course, flashed before him, I'm sure. Where were his children and his wife? What had happened? And uh, he called to them and he heard his wife. He clawed through the rubble and made his way to them to to free them. Now, despite their own injuries and, and losing everything they owned... And having a third child on the way, your grandmother was pregnant too. Your your grandparents became very powerful advocates uh, in dealing with the Halifax Relief Commission. What did they petition for? Um, well, mostly they petitioned for what they felt their son was entitled to. And um, the Relief Commission provided pensions for people who were seriously injured in the Halifax explosion. But for children like my father... Um, those pensions were put off until they reached 17 years of age. So for the first 17 years, well, Dad was two, so Mm -hmm. for the first 15 years, he only received medical care and treatment for his eye injuries, and they provided a few small uh, stipends for different things medically that my grandparents had to buy for him. But as far as a pension was concerned... Uh, while other people who suffered the same injury were getting pensions, the children weren't. And and my uh, grandparents felt that was not right, that money should be put aside in a trust fund for him so that when he reached the age of maturity, the funds were there for him. How long was it before your father, Eric, was fitted for prosthetic eyes? Um, he was close to, I believe, five years of age, Um, 
because it took a few years after his eyes were surgically removed before the eye sockets healed and before he was old enough to be fitted. Your father attended the Halifax School for the Blind, and its founder took a special interest in him. That is true. Yes, uh, Sir Frederick Fraser um, took a keen interest in my father, probably because his parents were so overprotective of him. In particular, my grandmother. She was maybe difficult to work with, shall I put it that way, when it came to them trying to get my father to go to school and leave the home and be at school all week like the other students. He should have really even stayed there on the weekend, but uh, she insisted that he be brought home on the weekends, and she really would have preferred him to be brought home every day. So there was some difficulty there in getting my father away from his mother, so to speak. Nowadays, they call them helicopter parents, parents I guess, yes. Now, again, because of his age, two and a half at the time of the explosion, your father had no visual memory of a lot of things. No. So what were some of the ways he learned about the world? Mostly by using his other senses, uh, touch, uh, smell, sound, listening with his uh, ears, obviously. Um, yeah, he examined things with his hands all of his life. As children, we would guide our father to certain items to uh, show him so that he could examine them. And we would be talking about the color and what they looked like, but he couldn't appreciate that. So we would show him in the way that we knew he could see, if you will. Tell us about his early, very intense interest in cars. Yes, that began as a child. And his father was quick enough to identify that and notice it and, and encourage it. Um, he was about four years old when his father wrote a letter to the Relief Commission asking if there was an old junked vehicle that my father could play on uh, because he was so amused and entertained by examining vehicles. Now, your father eventually did try to get into the Nova Scotia Technical College and was rebuffed how did he manage to become an auto mechanic? Well, that's pure determination. <laughs> he, or stubbornness, he called stubbornness, it. Stubbornness, <laughs> as he called it, yeah. He didn't like taking no for an answer. Uh, he felt that he was able to do it, and uh, if there was a will, there was a way. So he set about getting automobile manuals, and he had his brothers, uh, mostly his brothers, but his sisters read to him as well, and his parents, and they would read these manuals to him, and he would... Uh, use what he had gleaned from their readings and apply it to an engine and take the engine apart, put it back together, take it apart, put it back together until he had it down pat. Now, given the times that he was living in, he ran into some enlightened employers in his career. What, what were his superpowers as an auto mechanic that they seemed to recognize? That's one thing that has amazed me, too, given the time that he lived and grew up in. That was so against what people were doing then. Nobody would hire a blind mechanic. I mean, the best that they could do was maybe work in a canteen uh, at one of the local businesses. That was mostly where the CNIB and where the society felt they should be. Um, it amazes me to this day that these insightful employers took a chance and hired him. 
Oh, he did get a job in the 40s during the war, but then, of course, when everybody came back from the war, he was out of a job. How did he respond to that? Well, he was just so grateful to have had the job, and he had proven to himself and others that he could do it. So he felt quite confident that um, he could get another job. Now, tell us about uh, your dad and your mom. Uh, they had an interesting courtship. They got married. Eventually, you came along. His blindness aside, your father seemed to have great parenting skills. He did. I'm sure a lot of people would say, well, my dad was the best dad ever, but uh, (laughs) I feel truly blessed to be able to say that, yeah, he was my father. Um, He was just the most gentle of fathers, and he loved us. He, he, He genuinely loved us, and there was no hiding it, you know. You talk about uh, an incident in which uh, your younger sibling was uh, fussing a bit and your mother was looking after him, and your father simply took you out, and it was late at night, later than you were usually up. Tell us about that. You know, that's probably my first recollection of my father, being with my father. I was about four, I think. I was very young, and... um, I just remember him taking me out. And first of all, that was, I was never outdoors after dark. And it was the middle of the night, and he told me to look up at the stars. Well, there was another first for me. I had never seen the stars. At the time, the biggest thing to me was, I'm out in the dark, you know, and I'm in Daddy's arms. That's the best. But years later, I realized, my goodness, he didn't see the stars, but he told me to look at them. Quite a dad. Yeah. It turns out that on at least one occasion... You were tormented by other children because of your parents' blindness. Yeah. As they say, kids can be cruel. Yeah, it was a very uh, strange happening, but yes, I was. I was targeted, and uh, the gals said uh, they were going to pour this liquid in my eyes and make me blind like my father. But it's just kids being kids is what it boils down Mm to. Tell us about uh, day-to-day life when your dad ended up working for the city of Halifax mm. in the in the big garage. Yes, yeah. Well, um, every morning, of course, uh, Mom made a big breakfast for him. He always ate a big breakfast before he went to work. And she packed his lunch, and I'll always remember the old metal black lunch cans that gentlemen used to take to work with them. And so he'd uh, head out to work while we were having our breakfast and getting ready for school. And off he'd go to get the bus and... You know, off we'd go to school, and then at the end of the day, most times I went up to meet him at the bus stop when I was permitted to do so. And, uh, you know, when he came home, he was very active in our, our lives. After supper, he got us ready for bed. He told us stories, bedtime stories, and snuggled with us. And, um, you know, a lot of fathers weren't doing that at that time. Now, again, we didn't know that. My mother told me they had an agreement that uh, when he got home from work, it was his time with the children. He wanted quality time with the children. They didn't call it quality time then, but he said that he had known other fathers who had visual impairments whose children were a little strange with them. So he didn't want that to be the case with us. So he was very involved. What about uh, his retirement years? Oh, yeah. Well, that's when he did a lot more of what he always liked to do, recording, and when I say recording, recording uh, sounds of nature, or automobiles, or trains. And he did a lot of volunteer work. He volunteered at the Northwood Senior Citizens Home and at the Camp Hill Hospital. 
at Northwood, he was in the fun band, and he played his banjo. And at the uh, Camp Hill Veterans Hospital, he would sit and chat with the veterans and listen to their stories and tell them stories and just be a, a good friend. Is there something you hope readers will take away from reading your father's story, which is unique? I hope that they would be inspired, but I hope that they would try to reach for that goal that maybe they thought was unattainable, try a little harder to be a better person. Those are the things, I guess, that I would like to see. Good things, good things come from it. And perhaps reconsider how they view the potential of people who might not be as, as fully abled as they are. I hope they take away a better understanding of uh, people with visual impairments and that people with visual impairments want to be included. They want to be part of everyday life, and, and they can be. And I'd also like to know that Dad is continuing to inspire people as he always did when he was living. Thank you so much for coming in to book me. Thank you very much, Costas. Marilyn Davidson Elliott is the author of The Blind Mechanic. She's donating a portion of her book royalties to the CNIB Guide Dog Program, and one of this year's puppies has been named Eric in honor of her father. To hear past episodes of our podcast, go to bookmepodcast.ca or just pop Book Me with an exclamation mark in your search engine. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Our producer is Robin Grant, and Lynn Fox guides us through the world of audio recording. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. Music